take your Bibles and turn with me please to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. We step into 1 Corinthians 12 this week and as we do so, we are going to be walking through this passage. Now last week we were in 1 Corinthians 12 in a manner of speaking as we began to look at the spiritual gifts that God has given to His church. Uh, we needed to start with a little bit of foundation. And so we began by making a definitive statement as to why we do not believe as a church that sign gifts are valid for this age. Now the message I'm preaching today assumes that you have heard and understood our stance, my teaching concerning the validity of sign gifts for the church age. If I may just give a brief statement in that regard, it is as follows. In accordance with our understanding of the scriptures on the nature and purpose of sign gifts, coupled with our careful observations of the fruit of the charismatic movement in several parts of the world, we are confident that sign gifts are not valid throughout the bulk of the church age. Furthermore, we reject their practice as unbiblical. Now, if this statement concerns you, if you were not able to be here last week or listen to last week's sermon, or uh, if you're just not completely sure, I encourage you to um, listen to that sermon or listen to it again if need be. Come see me um, for further clarification uh, if you have any issues regarding the biblical um, definition of sign gifts or, or why we would not believe them to be valid today. Because today we're going to actually begin walking through the text. Now you all know me, I'm not very good at clever anecdotes and um, clever introductions, so I'm just going to jump right in and we'll just um, start wading through this material. And today we will walk through all 31 verses of 1 Corinthians 12. However, we're going to be back in 1 Corinthians 12 next time we're together. And at that time we'll discuss um, not so much perhaps the meaning that Paul has in context, as we'll understand that today. But next time we'll discuss the spiritual gifts themselves. We'll go to other passages that speak on the spiritual gifts. And it will be done with the intent that you can learn exactly what your spiritual gift is or begin to start that journey of learning what your spiritual gift is in order that you might be able to use it for the good of the body and for the glory of God. So let's begin in verse 1. The Bible says this, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You will notice right away if you're using a King James Bible that the word gifts is italicized, meaning that it is not in the original Greek text. Literally, the Greek word spirit that is translated spiritual gifts is uh, a word literally meaning that which is spiritual or that which is pertaining unto the spirit. And Paul tells them that he does not want them to be ignorant concerning the, this thing or these things that are pertaining to the spiritual. Now we will see later on in the context quite clearly that gifts is what Paul is speaking on. And so it's not a misnomer here that they use the word spiritual gifts. However, I do want to uh, emphasize the fact that what he's specifically telling them is that he does not want them to be ignorant concerning God's workings as it pertains to the enablements that are spiritual in nature and therefore given to believers 
by God himself. So we're talking about something that is indeed pertaining to the spirit. We're not talking about natural gifts and abilities and talents. It may include those. Um, it may branch off of those, but that is not inherently what we're talking about. We're talking about something spiritual, imparted by the Spirit and given through the Spirit. Verse 2 says this, Ye know that ye were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. So Paul is making a contrast here between these gifts which are spiritual and then this, their lives prior to the baptism of the Spirit prior to the time that they were indwelled by the Holy Spirit, prior to the time they were given these gifts, when they were rather carried away, not by the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit of God, but rather led by dumb idols, idols that could not speak, could not think, had no expectations, and had no ability to impart upon them gifts, no ability to impart upon them enablement for ministry. They were led according to their culture, according to their sin, toward these dumb idols. And Paul says this is very different from those particular physical manifestations that you had prior to your salvation. This is something that you have as a distinct part of your salvation. And so he says, as he gets into the teaching in verse 3, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. So we're continuing this concept of contrast here in verse 3, just as there are those that have been imparted with spiritual gifts, and then um, those things that are as pertaining to the world, um, the difference between one who is uh, in the Spirit and one who is carried away by dumb idols. Paul wants them to understand first and foremost that it is impossible for a man who is speaking by the Spirit of God, exercising his spiritual gift uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to disregard the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And this is not just in word, but in action. That word accursed, to call Jesus a curse, literally uh, banned, spiritually rejected. Uh, it's the Greek word anathema. Any person who claims to be led by the Spirit of God, but whose words or actions reject or contradict Jesus' person or Jesus' teaching is not actually acting under the impulse of the Spirit of God. You say, well, that's kind of obvious, but is it? Is it that obvious? Jesus would call them wolves in sheep's clothing. Those who are false teachers, but who look really good. And so Paul is making an emphasis here that one who has a spiritual gift and is exercising that gift according to the empowerment of the Spirit in his life will not call Jesus accursed. And likewise, anyone whose words and actions confirm the Lordship of Jesus Christ, his person, his teachings, cannot come from any but the Holy Ghost. Now this can be a little confusing to understand as we try to wrap our minds around what Paul is saying here. So let's just break it down a little bit. You know, any man can say, Jesus is Lord. In fact, the Bible says, many will say to God in the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name? And he will look at them and say what? Depart from me. I never knew you. In fact, James tells us that even the devils believe and tremble. In the Gospels, we see 
demons who are calling Jesus the Son of God and proclaiming Him to be God. So Paul is not simply speaking about any man getting up and saying words such as Jesus is Lord. He's speaking about a man in the congregation who is exercising what he claims to be his spiritual gift. Now, we'll find out in the next two chapters that in Corinth, a very heavy emphasis was being placed on speaking in tongues and prophecy. The speaking in tongues is most likely because, as Paul will say, as we'll get there in chapter 14, verse 18, he spake in tongues a great deal while he was among them. So, most likely, the gift of speaking in tongues was attributed to being like Paul in some fashion and therefore perhaps considered to be some higher form of Christianity, some greater form of spirituality. So as Paul spoke to the Corinthian church and he is correcting them on these issues of spiritual gifts, it makes sense that he would frame much of what he is saying within the context of prophecy and speaking in tongues because those were the issues that the church was particularly having trouble with. And when a man is engaged in these actions and therefore claiming to be under the control of the Holy Spirit, when he is standing up in the congregation and speaking in tongues, when he is standing up in the con uh, congregation and declaring that he has a word of prophecy, when he is standing up and declaring himself to be uh, one speaking according to the word of God or one ministering according to the word of God, he is therefore claiming to some degree or another to be under the control of the Holy Spirit or at least in line with the Holy Spirit. And so as this man uh, openly, publicly professes himself to be in line with the Holy Spirit but minimizes or denies the Lordship of Jesus Christ, well then you can know right away that he's not of the Spirit. That he's not speaking of the Spirit. That he's not prophesying of the Spirit. That he's not teaching of the Spirit. Likewise, if any man is engaged in prophecy or tongues and therefore claiming by his actions and by his words to be under the control of the Spirit of God, exercising his spiritual gifts, and he magnifies the Lordship of Jesus Christ, his person and his work, then you can rest assured that as you see the manifestations of the gift and you see that his message aligns with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ, that he is indeed of the Holy Spirit. This is very similar to the concept that we might have read about in the Old Testament where the prophet is speaking for the Lord. And the scriptures gave qualifications, of course. The scriptures stated that if a man speaks and it is not in line with the scripture, or excuse me, and it does not come to pass, then it's not true. If a man prophesies and it doesn't come to pass, well, then he's a liar and he needs to be stoned. But uh, God also promised that there would be prophets that came along who would speak and their um, prophecies or their signs would come to pass. And yet God says if they speak and their signs come to pass, but what they are saying is not in line with the word of God, then don't accept him. He's still not from the Lord. And in fact, the Lord sent him and allowed his signs to come to pass specifically in order that he might prove your love and loyalty. And so that's kind of what Paul is saying here. That if a man gets up and he is claiming to speak according to the word of God or he is claiming to exercise a spiritual gift and yet his exercising of that seeming spiritual gift is actually minimizing or denying the Lord Jesus Christ, well then you can know right away that he is not indeed at all 
exercising his spiritual gift. He is exercising something else. And the reason why the exercising of spiritual gifts can be so clearly discerned is because they are all, without fail, sourced in the same Spirit, that being the Holy Spirit, who will always, without fail, use those under his control to magnify the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will never be found denying or minimizing the glory or the person or the work of Jesus Christ. And so because it is one Spirit that gives us all of these gifts, there will be a consistency among the gifts as to their direction, and their direction will be unto Christ. This is a hard and fast rule concerning the ministry of the Holy Spirit and his gifts. The Holy Spirit does not ever draw attention to himself. He always draws attention to the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look it up. Do the study. Look into the Word of God and and see. Now, we could only cover so much in our sermon last week as to why we do not um, believe the sign gifts are valid, but if you needed another reason why the charismatic movement is out of balance and operating unbiblically, it is because the emphasis of their ministry and their gifts is focused upon bringing attention to the Holy Spirit, which is not biblical. The Holy Spirit functions to bring attention to the Son of God, not to bring attention to Himself. And each one of the gifts is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit and therefore functions to bring attention to the person and work of Jesus Christ as well. So if a person is claiming to be manifesting a spiritual gift, but is not bringing attention or glory to the person and work of Jesus Christ, then you know it's invalid. You know that they're not actually exercising a gift of the Spirit. You know there's something wrong. And notice how Paul invokes the oneness of the entire Trinity in verses 4 through 6. He says this, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. He states that though the gifts are different, the same Spirit gives them. There's the Holy Spirit. And then though there are different administrations or different ministries of these gifts, they differ. It is through the same Lord. There's God the Son, Jesus Christ. And then finally, that through the operations or purposes of these gifts, and though they're diverse, yet it is the same God that is working through them. And there we have God the Father. Everything about what the spiritual gifts are, everything about how they are used, and the effect that they have is 100%, will be 100% consistent with the character and nature of God, who is one, but in three distinct persons. And so if a person is exercising a gift contrary to the word of God, contrary to the character of God, contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you can know that he is not actually operating through a gift of the Spirit. But there's one more important thing to understand. Perhaps I would say the most important thing to understand about the spiritual gifts from chapter 12, as we see in verse 7. Notice what he says. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. That phrase, to profit with all, is one word in the Greek, and it literally means to bring together to collect, or to contribute in order to help. Do you know what this verse means? Well, it means two things. 
Number one, this verse means that every believer has been given some manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It said the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man. Every believer has at least one spiritual gift. But there's something else that this verse states, and this is, this is essential. Number two, not only does it state that every believer has been given some spiritual gift, but number two, the purpose of the spiritual gifts is not personal. Spiritual gifts are given to profit the whole body. May I say that again? Spiritual gifts are not personal. They are given to individuals to profit the whole body of Christ. See, when you get saved, you are given a gift that is meant to be used as a part of a church. Its capacity to be effective outside of the body of Christ is dramatically reduced, if not completely eliminated. And what this means is, if you are not a part of a functioning body of believers, a local church, then you have a spiritual gift which is absolutely and unquestionably not functioning as God intends it to function. Folks, that's a big deal. So we've learned that the gifts of the Spirit are distributed to every believer, diverse in their manifestation and functions, and directed toward use specifically as a part of a whole, not as an individual unit. Paul highlights this fact in verses 8-10. through 10. Look at it with me. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge, to another, uh, excuse me, uh, word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and self same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Now, human being being humans being what they are, excuse me, it is our tendency to focus in on what the gifts are that Paul is listing. In verse 8, he says words of wisdom and words of knowledge are gifts. Verse 9, faith and healing. Verse 10, miracles, prophecy, discernment, tongues, interpretation. And next week, we, as I mentioned, we will focus in on these various gifts. But as you read the text in context, it seems quite evident that Paul's focus is not on what the gifts are here. He doesn't go through them. He doesn't teach them. In fact, you'll find that in every passage where Paul references the spiritual gifts, in fact, the identity of the gifts themselves almost seem like side notes, afterthoughts. Uh, just simply a part of the context. And such is the case here. As Paul lists these gifts, the word that is very important, the word that Paul wants us to understand, the word that Paul wants us to take from this is not uh, gifts or one of the gifts in, in specifically or in general, but the word same. Notice how many times the word same is used here. One Spirit dividing His ability between believers according to His will. The same Spirit, the same purpose, the same will of God, aligned with the same expectations of God, so that the whole church 
can become what we as individuals simply cannot. And what this means, folks, is that we need each other. If you think your pastor has been gifted with everything necessary to win Buffalo to Christ, you're wrong. There is no such thing as a one-man church. You are a part of that church. You are a part of reaching Buffalo for Christ. And it is God's will that within this local body, there would be all the gifts necessary to reach this community and disciple believers. Paul finished verse 11 mentioning again that the Spirit is the one that divides these gifts. That's the Holy Spirit of God. The reality of this division will be Paul's focus for the remainder of this chapter. And Paul is going to use a common illustration, a familiar illustration, the illustration of the human body to emphasize the diversity and importance of each member of the church. So Paul says in verse 12 that just as the human body is one body but has many members and everything attached to the body is without question a member and um, without question useful, Christ is the same way. Verse 13 says that by one Spirit, that being the Holy Spirit, we are all baptized into one body, that body being the church. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are, are we all baptized into one body whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. So we're all baptized into one body, and that body is, according to the scriptures, the church. Regardless of national ethnicity, regardless of social status, we have all been baptized into the church, if you are a born-again believer, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit which is what we also call being born again. Now, please note that this is not speaking of water baptism. Paul clearly states this to be a spiritual baptism. It's described in Ephesians 4, verse 30, as the sealing of the Spirit of God unto the day of redemption. It's described in John 3 as being born again. It's talking about the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of salvation, not the baptism of water, which is a step of obedience following salvation. And Paul's point in these two verses is that just as we all have one body, but it's composed of many members and everything that is attached is considered a member and is considered needed, so too the church is one body made up of many members and everyone that is attached to the church by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ is a member of the body, which means they have a function, which means they are a part now, Paul is speaking on what we might call a, a universal plane here. I've known many pastors who have tried feverishly to work the local church into these two verses, and in doing so, I feel they do do a disservice to the text. Paul is clearly speaking of one body of Christ, and I can guarantee that this local church is not the only manifestation of that body on this earth, nor is any local church. The body of Christ is every believer. But I do remind you that as we spoke two weeks ago when I referenced 1 Corinthians 11.18, it became very apparent that Paul intends this teaching to trickle down to be applied to a local body of believers. And there's no way we can get around that, folks. There is no way Paul can be speaking exclusively about the universal church here. 
If the gifts of the Spirit as given by the Holy Spirit are not localized so they can be gathered into functioning local churches, then the whole point of Paul's teaching here is useless. If our local church can completely fulfill Christ's purpose without the diversity of gifts that Paul speaks of here, then we've just proven Paul wrong. If our little local church can function just being a small portion of the members of the body, if we don't need all of the members, then Paul's teaching about how we need all the members is a moot point. So though Paul speaks in a universal context here, in that there is only one body of Christ made up of every believer upon this earth, yet Paul's point is invalid unless we translate his teaching down into the context of the local church. May I just help you understand this for a moment? We, we live in a global society. We live in a place where we can um, communicate with people very easily. I Skype with my parents so that they can see their grandchildren quite regularly, oftentimes once a week. What an amazing thing it is that we can have a video call across thousands of miles, instantaneous communication. The church can function as a whole in a way that the church never has been able to do so before. And so we might be tempted to say, well, yeah, but now there's a member of a church halfway across the country that can provide for us a service that our church simply doesn't have. Our church doesn't have that teacher, preacher, pastor, but we can satellite to a church in Texas and he can be our teacher, preacher, pastor. And perhaps to to a degree, there's something to be said for that in this particular age. But think about what Paul was saying to Corinth. He was still referencing the church as one body, And yet, imagine if Corinth lacked certain parts of that. They couldn't just give Ephesus a call or put someone from Philippi on an airplane to come and to fill the gaps for them. We're talking days' journey. We're talking long stays. We're talking tremendous traveling restraints. They needed their members to be a part of their local churches. And I am a firm believer that that has not changed today. God wants us to reach Buffalo. And He will do so by providing the church of God all the members necessary. And if you doubt me that there's any sort of local church application here, verses 28 through 31 should help us with that when we get there. Now, in verses 14 through 24, Paul's illustration really begins to blossom. Just like a human body, the body of Christ is full of many members, each with different gifts, different functions, and different abilities. In verses 15 through 17, I'll I'll read verses 14 through 17, Paul asks several questions. He says in verse 14, For the body is not one member, but many. Now here's his questions. If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where were the smelling? Paul's making two points in this illustration. The first is that every believer has a function. The foot isn't disqualified from being a part of the body simply because it can't do what the hand can do. An ear isn't disqualified from being a part of the body simply because it can't do what an eye can do. 
And in fact, when you think about it, that's silly, isn't it? If only the eye mattered so that every member of the church was an eye, the church would see great, but it couldn't hear. If only the ear mattered so that every member of the church was an ear, the church would hear great, but it couldn't smell. In other words, folks, we're not meant to be spiritual clones of one another. We're not meant to be um, spiritual clones in our gifts any more than we're supposed to be spiritual clones in our standards. We don't have the same gifts. We don't have the same abilities. And that doesn't make us any less necessary one from another. So we see... First, that every believer's gifts have a a necessary role in the church. Paul's second point in this illustration is found in verses 18 through 20. Look at it with me. Paul says, But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body? And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. Not only are all members of the church necessary, but in the same way we cannot rank the church by degrees of necessity or degrees of importance. You cannot say that the gifts which your pastor has been given are more important than the gifts which you have been given, just because they are less obvious or behind the scenes or more in a service capacity than a leadership capacity. The men of prayerful faith, the capable teacher, the zealous evangelist, the silent servant, the joyful encourager, the careful discerner. Some of these may be very public servants, while others completely behind the scenes, but they're all necessary and of equal value in the church. The Holy Spirit has distributed to men, not according to value, but according to his divine purpose. In fact, if you'll look with me at verses 22 and 23, Paul says something even more startling. We've already read them. Not only are those members that seem less feeble, in other words, members that seem less necessary, not only are they in fact necessary, but verse 23 says that quite often those members which we deem less honorable are in fact more essential to the functioning of the church. And this makes sense, does it not? We are in a building today as I'm preaching the Word of God and uh, we see the lovely paint and the walls and the stained glass and the floors, but when push comes to shove, what's the most important part of this building? Is it not the foundation? You don't see it, but it's there and it's essential. Furthermore, verse 24 tells us something else about the less comely or the more feeble among us. That those who seem to be less comely, more feeble, have the privilege of being the ones that are the most necessary. So that in many ways, the blessing upon the naturally uh, less noble or um, less obvious gifts 
may be greater than the blessing upon those which are more noble or more obvious. And so the question we must ask ourselves then is, why? Why is the body of believers so essential? Why has God designed us to need to work together? Why didn't He just give make us super soldiers for Christ? One man's spiritual machines. Well, Paul gives the answer in verses 25 and 26. He says this, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. What Paul is saying here is that God has given us each particular ability so that we would need each other. And as we find a need one for another, we would not divide one against another. That we would show the same care to the retired elderly lady that we would show to the young vibrant pastor because they're both needed. That we would show the same care for the poor man as we would for the rich man because they're both needed. We know on the authority of God's word that each man is as essential as the next. But you know, this also means that we will share some things with one another. When you give yourself to another, you become vulnerable. So when one man suffers, we all suffer. When one man is victorious, we are all victorious. In other words, God has given us all diverse and necessary gifts so that we would work as a team to win the lost and to disciple believers. On a football team, each of the 11 men on the field has a different and essential skill. They don't train for all the skills. They focus in on one skill and they train hard. The quarterback can't look at the wide receiver and say, you aren't needed today. Sorry, you can just sit on the bench. The running back can't say to the offensive lineman, you aren't needed today. Because they need to work as a team if they're going to be successful. If there's division, the team won't work as well and they won't win games. When they realize that they need one another and they start to work in such a way that their gifts complement one another, that's when they're effective for Christ. The quarterback can't win all by himself. You need 11 men on the field to be effective. And when the running back does well, the team rejoices because the goal of the team is furthered. When the quarterback does poorly, the whole team feels that failure. When a player gets hurt, the whole team feels his loss. That's the church, folks. I need you and you need me. When someone's hurt, when someone's fallen into sin, we feel that. When someone's victorious, we rejoice with them. Because when we're working effectively as a team, that's when things get done for Christ. God has designed us to need one another. Now in verses 27 through 31, Paul describes various officers that God has placed in the church for its function. He says, now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Notice how local church this is. And God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? 
Then he says, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way. We'll talk about this more uh, in next week, and then particularly as we get into 1 Corinthians 13. But Paul asks, can all be apostles or prophets or teachers? And his answer is absolutely not. So Paul has a different idea for them, which we'll talk about later. As we apply this morning, there's two points that I'd like to hone in on. First point is this. If you are a believer, you have an essential gift given to you to be used for the profit of the local church to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no believer, regardless of age, regardless of ability, regardless of gender or nationality or past, that does not have an essential gift to be used for the good of the local church. Folks, you are needed. I don't care if you're five years in this room or 50 years in this room or 85 years in this room. It doesn't matter. If you are a born-again believer, you have a gift to be used in the church and for the church. Not only does your pastor not have the ability to to build and to teach and to guide and to grow this church on his own, but God is spiritually unwilling to give me the capacity to do such a thing because that is not how God has designed the church to function. God has not designed one-man churches. The church is not a man or a board of men or a democracy. The church is a body whose head is Christ, where each member functions in the way that the head directs him for the glory of Jesus Christ and to benefit the whole body. Where are you comfortable? What burdens has God given you? How can you be used? Where can you be used? It's not a question of if you're needed or if you can be useful or if you have a purpose. The only question is what your purpose is, what those gifts are, and whether or not you are personally willing to step out in faith and use the gifts that God has given to you. That puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Say, well, pastor, I don't know my gift. Well, hang tight. That'll be our next lesson. Our second and final application, the first application was this. If you're a believer, you have an essential gift to be used for the profit of the local church to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second gift or application is this. No one gift is superior to or more necessary than any other gift regardless of the public honor which that gift receives. You are not just gifted, but your gift is essential to the church. Whatever gift the Spirit of God has given to you in order to be a blessing to the church, the church needs it just as much as it needs any other gift. You may never receive credit for the part you play, but you're needed. You don't hear many people giving a lot of praise to fingernails, do you? But could you imagine your fingers operating without them? Could you imagine your fingers operating without that protection? Could you imagine trying to pick popcorn kernels out of your teeth without them? You don't hear many people giving a lot of praise to the belly button, but I guarantee you there was a point in your life where that area of your anatomy was pretty important. You don't hear many people giving accolades to the ribs, but I can guarantee you the heart and the lungs would be pretty sorry if they were not there. Perhaps you're a rib. Maybe you're not the beating heart of this church, but you have been called by God to be one that protects and encourages and exhorts and and strengthens the beating heart of this church. And you may do 
your thing for the church week in and week out. And maybe it's just sending an encouraging note or serving the church in some small way or giving abundantly or earnestly praying for each member or for the church as a whole or eagerly evangelizing the lost. And maybe no one knows you're doing it and you'll never see praise on this earth for it. But it is praiseworthy in heaven. Now, it's quite possible that many of you are troubled at this point because you don't know what your gift is. And I've said before, next week we'll consider what the Bible tells us about spiritual gifts and how we can better identify them. It'll actually be two weeks. I'm out of town next week. We will then consider ways in which we might be able to use our spiritual gifts for the betterment of the church and for the glory of God. But for this week, as we go our ways, would you do at least one of two things for me? If you know what your spiritual gift is, would you commit yourself to using that gift for the good of this local church? unto the glory of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, and you say, I can't really get going yet, Pastor, would you commit yourself to being ready and willing to use that gift? Would you get over the hurdle of using the gift? You say, of course, Pastor, no problem. Well, what happens if he reveals to you that your spiritual gift is evangelism? Or teaching? Hmm... Or giving? Hmm. Would you commit yourself to being ready and willing to use the gift that God has given to you, whatever it might be, for the good of the local church and unto the glory of God? Let's pray together.